trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This is a place where wrong thinkers can gather to consider opinions that uh, were just not allowed onto that 3x5 index card of allowable opinion. It's really kind of a fun place, too. You might hear some things or learn some things or uh, discover some ideas that uh, you're just not allowed to think about elsewhere. It's uh, remarkably uh, exhilarating. And I'm glad you're a part of it. Our program is brought to you by SolarPatriots.com, also MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, GovernYourIncome.com, SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com, that's uh, in St. George, Utah, the Heather Turner team for Patriot Home Mortgage, also in St. George, and HSL Ammo, which by a remarkable coincidence is also based in St. George, Utah. Thank you so much for being part of our audience today. I, w- I want to start with a little bit of... Uh, uh, this is kind of a, you know, drink from the fire hose kind of thing from, uh, Brandon Smith. And again, with so many eyes on the Kyle Rittenhouse case, there are a number of lessons that we can learn from this case. Brandon Smith is keyed in on some of the main ones, but one of the big ones that he points out is the, this case proves the establishment wants to bring back star chamber tyranny. I don't know if you remember the movie. I think it was a Michael Douglas movie years ago, The Star Chamber. And it's it was about extrajudicial justice. In other words, you know, the very powerful, they have their own way of dispensing and dealing with justice, something us little people don't have the option of doing. So Brandon Smith writes, one of the most interesting stories from the early days leading up to the American Revolution involves the events surrounding the Boston Massacre. On March 5th of 1770, the Stamp Act had just been repealed, but British soldiers were ever-present in Boston as a show of force against the rowdy colonists. The British government, in order to save face, implemented the Townsend Acts instead as a means to continue taxing the colonies, without representation, of course, and anger was growing in the streets. The presence of the Redcoats in the city added to the public fury and protests were sparked. One such protest was raging in front of the Custom House on King Street over a disagreement between wig maker Henry Knox and a soldier. The argument grew into what was later described as a riot. Allegedly, the crowd became violent and started throwing objects at the soldiers. One of the soldiers let off a shot and someone yelled fire, causing all the Redcoats to shoot into the crowd, killing five of them and injuring others. Now, the colonial justice system could have chosen to use their position to railroad the soldiers in question and make an ideological example out of them. Instead, in the first trial of Captain John Preston, ample legal representation was given. In fact, the lawyer was John Adams, who would later become the second president of the United States, along with a fair trial. Adams' position that the soldiers believed they were under imminent danger of bodily harm convinced the jury and a not-guilty verdict was given for the majority of the soldiers with manslaughter charges for two of them. Now, John Adams felt that his victory in defense of the British soldiers was actually a victory for the colonies and ultimately the revolution. You see, the British looked upon the colonials as insurrectionists and barbarians. They did not think that a fair trial for a soldier in the colonies was even possible. 
So by proving them wrong with grace, logic, and objectivity, Adams and the jury destroyed a common lie perpetuated by the monarchy and the British establishment. Namely, the colonies had more honor than the British did. Now, this lack of honor among the British establishment became evident before and during the Revolutionary War when the Star Chamber became the de facto law of the monarchy in the colonies. So the Star Chamber was an elitist-operated justice system, or tribunal, originally designed so that the British aristocracy was assured a fair trial whenever they actually faced a criminal charge. In other words, it was a special court for the power elites that was so se- that was separate and superior to the courts used for average peasants. Publicly, it was also presented as a means for commoners to redress grievances against aristocrats. But it was also well understood the Star Chamber would rarely go against the nobility unless they had offended the king. And if they went against the king, they would be black-bagged just like anyone else. Now, during the unrest in the colonies... The Star Chamber was used in a different manner. It became a weapon to crush dissent among subjects that spoke out against the empire and sowed the seeds of sedition. The dreaded court was highly secretive and the public was often obstructed from its proceedings. Its rulings were overseen by the establishment rather than a jury. And in many cases, those people being charged were never given a chance to defend themselves. They were sentenced before they ever entered a courtroom if they entered a courtroom at all. Silence was often considered an admission of guilt rather than a right of the accused. Punishments were brutal, including torture and imprisonment under the worst possible conditions. Now, interestingly, the death penalty was not allowed, but the court would instead place defendants in conditions so horrible that they tended to die on their own. And all of this was justified under the claim that every person charged was treasonous, therefore they did not deserve a fair trial among their peers. After the war was over and the British defeated, the Founding Fathers drafted large portions of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights to counter and prevent the same abuses they saw under the Star Chamber. The Fifth Amendment, in particular, was directly inspired as a way to stop Star Chamber-like abuses of court power. But let's leap ahead to the current day, where we find the Kyle Rittenhouse trial, now nearing its end, has beyond anything else revealed a vicious intention by the establishment to bring back the oppression of the Star Chamber through the media-manipulated court of public opinion, mob rule, as well as violations of established constitutional law. Now, the political left could have chosen the path of reason, allowing justice to take its natural course through a display of objectivity and fairness as John Adams and the Colonials did during the Boston Massacre trial. But they've instead chosen to take the same route as the British, motivated by a win-at-any-cost mentality, using lies, strategic omissions, censorship, and threats of mob violence to turn the Rittenhouse trial into a political proxy war. So here are just a handful of examples that show the establishment and the media are seeking to undermine centuries of normal constitutional protections, including the right of self-defense. Let's start with the Kenosha peaceful protest misdirection. Brandon Smith says, first, let's be very clear that the media's handling of the entire Kenosha incident was corrupt from the very beginning. Aside from refusing to call the riots that erupted what they were, riots, The media has constantly or consistently mischaracterized the police shooting as brutality against black suspect Jacob Blake, 
Blake, crippled by the incident, has been painted as a victim and hero in the news. So the reality is, Blake had a warrant out for his arrest, including trespassing, disorderly conduct, and sexual assault. The police were made aware of this before they attempted to detain him. Blake also had a history of resisting arrest and, of course, attempted to do so again in Kenosha. Video clearly shows Blake trying to march away from officers and jump back into his vehicle. Now, the media claimed Blake was unarmed, yet he's clearly holding a Karambit-style knife in the same videos, which the police ordered him to drop, and he refused. The Wisconsin Department of Justice confirmed Blake was armed, and Blake himself admitted to having the knife. Now, officers were already on edge as Blake tried to reach into his car or use his car to get away or possibly use the car as a weapon. Frankly, Blake's history and behavior at the scene made him a criminal, not a hero or a victim. And all of this information was readily available within about a day of the event. But the media tried to hide these facts surrounding his shooting from the public, and they deliberately sowed seeds of unrest. And the ignorant and reactionary people within the BLM movement ate up their propaganda. So when violence broke out, the media portrayed the riots as peaceful protests for racial justice. Even though, just as with George Floyd, there was no evidence whatsoever that racial motivations had anything to do with it. The riots were based on lies from the beginning to end. And this false narrative has bled into and tainted the handling of the Kyle Rittenhouse case. For even if Kyle Rittenhouse was defending himself from attackers, the attackers are still presented as the good guys because they were fighting for social justice, which again is simply not true. Now I've got to take a quick break here, but I'm going to come back to Brandon Smith's article. If the media was deceiving us on these points, what else might they have uh, twisted, you know, to their own ends? If it sounds like I'm sowing seeds of distrust, I guess, in a sense, I'm just saying, don't take anything at face value that, uh, that the mainstream media is pushing in your direction because they've shown this propensity to distort or to otherwise mislead. Now, we've got a couple other examples coming up. Again, this is from Brandon Smith. The Rittenhouse case proves the establishment wants to bring back Star Chamber tyranny. And we'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just want to give a quick shout out here to a couple of my sponsors, including GovernYourIncome.com. Now, I don't know if you have given serious consideration to, uh, you know, how dependent are you on the whims of someone else for your income? It's not to say it's a bad thing to work for somebody else, but a lot of folks are learning a pretty painful lesson right now that, you know, if, if your boss or if your corporation is one that's going along with the vax mandates and trying to force something on you, oh, sorry, we're, our hands are tied. We don't want to be fined. Maybe it's time to take a little bit different approach and think about what you could be doing to support yourself in a truly independent way. 
Click on the link, governyourincome.com. It's at the bottom of my show notes. It will take you to a website which will describe how you can learn to do day trading in the foreign currency exchange markets. Look, stock markets can have their good and bad times, but the, the foreign currency exchange or Forex markets, they have to exist. No matter what's going on in China's market or Japan's or the U.S.'s stock market, that foreign currency exchange has to be going on. We're talking about a company that will train you so well that they would trust you with company money to get in there and make day trades. It's not for everybody. But if it's the kind of thing that you're looking for, and particularly if you're looking for real income independence, might be worth a second look. Just check out the link in my show notes. So I've been sharing this case for or this, uh, this article from Brandon Smith. The Rittenhouse case proves the establishment wants to bring back star chamber tyranny. And he points out the, the distortion of how, well, we were told from the very beginning, it's a peaceful protest. It was just a peaceful protest in Kenosha. This is where you get the meme of the reporter standing in front of the burning rubble and saying, fiery but mostly peaceful protests. <laughs> yeah, don't believe your eyes. I'll just gaslight you into thinking that what's happened here is really not that bad. Here's another example. The kid defending himself is actually considered the villain because he defended himself. Brandon Smith writes, The prosecution in the Rittenhouse case should have watched the widely available video evidence, including the secret FBI evidence, and seen that without a shadow of a doubt, Rittenhouse was defending himself from an unprovoked attack by an unhinged mob. Now, it's no coincidence that Every person Rittenhouse was forced to shoot had a violent criminal record, including Joseph Rosenbaum, who had multiple convictions for pedophilia, including 11 counts of child molestation. These people were chasing Rittenhouse because they intended to do him harm, just as they had done others harm. But the media and the prosecution offer a bizarrely disconnected view in which Kyle Rittenhouse provoked the mob into attacking him simply because he was there and because he had a firearm. Multiple witnesses and FBI surveillance footage indicate Joseph Rosenbaum chased, then attacked Rittenhouse, trying to take his rifle by force, which is why he was shot. But that doesn't matter in the star chamber. Lead prosecutor Thomas Binger openly argued that Rettenhouse lost his right to self-defense because he was carrying a gun. Now, Binger apparently overlooks the fact that one of Rittenhouse's attackers, Gage Grosskreutz, also had a gun illegally due to his felony record and admitted in court that he ran at Rittenhouse with the weapon pointed at him when Rittenhouse shot him. But somehow only Kyle's gun was the cause of the violence and all of his attackers were responding to the threatening presence of his weapon? Right. But Brandon Smith says this has been the overarching uh, crux of the prosecution's case as well as the media narrative. They're saying Rittenhouse should be treated as an active shooter and that the leftist mob was simply leaving, leaping into action, bravely trying to stop him. Now, that doesn't translate at all when you watch video of the event. It is clear that Rittenhouse is being pursued by the mob and they attack him from behind, causing him to fall to the ground. Only then... Does he defend himself with a rifle against his attackers, including Anthony Huber, who tried to bash Kyle's head in with a skateboard, and Grosskreutz, who ran at him with a Glock? Now, to clarify, because this may not be a widely understood factor, 
if someone is trying to get away from you, you cannot attack them and then legally claim self-defense was your motive. Only police officers have the right to physically detain a person who's trying to escape. Also, if Rittenhouse was an active shooter, you would think he would have fired belligerently into the crowd, but he did not. He only fired on the people trying to hurt him. So the prosecution and media narratives are a blatant attack on the right of self-defense in general. In closing arguments, the prosecution states, Rittenhouse was a coward. He should have used his fists to fight off the angry mob instead of using his rifle, displaying a clear intent to undermine not just Rittenhouse's character, but undermine the concept of overall gun rights. Now, Brandon Smith says the case is obviously politically slanted against Rittenhouse because he's conservative. Had this been a leftist shooting a mob of conservatives under the same circumstances at the January 6th riot, I doubt it would have ever gone to trial. But the implications of this are far-reaching. If Rittenhouse is found guilty, despite all the evidence to the contrary, the assertion will then be that self-defense is no longer a protected right for anyone with the wrong politics. It will be seen as open season on conservatives at any such events in the future, and all self-defense law will come into question, especially any defense law that involves gun rights. Now, he touches on a couple of other things here, like uh, the Fifth Amendment attack and the strategy of subverting a trial. He talks about silencing the alternative media and obstructing honest reporting. In fact, he says perhaps the most blatant act by the establishment has been to use big tech to censor various elements and observations of the Rittenhouse trial. Facebook and Twitter have been policing Rittenhouse-related posts. YouTube blocked the majority of independent streamers covering the live closing arguments of the case. The mainstream media has completely avoided any mention of this decision, but of course they would. It only makes them the, it makes them the only source for case coverage and their narrative the only narrative. How about that thermal surveillance evidence from the FBI that only saw the light of day in the middle of the trial? Withholding evidence is a direct obstruction of justice, but it's also a direct attempt to undermine public insight into the case. The narrative is easier to fabricate if one filters out any evidence that contradicts it. And this control of the narrative has led to widespread disinformation in the Kyle Rittenhouse case. I mean, there are many leftists out there that still actually think the people that Kyle shot were black and that Rittenhouse is a racist. The media has asserted for the past year Rittenhouse's self-defense was somehow related to white supremacy. Media hacks like CNN's Don Lemon have also insinuated the judge in the case is biased and possibly racist. So, the Star Chamber is an ideal, tyrannical tool. But the establishment and leftists don't have it in hand just yet. They want it badly. Their behavior during the Rittenhouse case makes this clear. In other words, Brandon Smith says, look, the star chamber's not upon us yet, but it is coming soon if these people get their way. Rule by the mob goes well beyond the effects of the star chamber, but this could be by design. Think of it this way. Say Rittenhouse is found not guilty and BLM mobs burn down Kenosha in response. Future courts and future juries in similar cases might then decide it's just easier to ignore facts and evidence so we can avoid mob violence and the leftists are appeased. The Star Chamber Chamber will return because it will be seen as a preferable alternative to national riots. It'll be a mechanism for the greater good, and the establishment will get what it wanted all along. 
This cannot be allowed to happen. The Rittenhouse trial does not represent a singular shooting event and an isolated case for self-defense. Brandon Smith says it's a fulcrum point for the very fabric of our society and what justice will actually mean in the years to come. So if an obviously innocent kid is convicted of murder merely because of his political beliefs, well, or if a mob is allowed to burn or destroy swaths of a city because the verdict is not guilty, every effort the Founding Fathers made to stop the creation of another star chamber will be erased. That's pretty powerful stuff. Again, there's a link in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. We'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Quick shout out here to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah. These are the folks you want to talk to if you are looking to get a traditional home loan, a reverse mortgage, a VA loan, even if you just want to refinance your existing loan. Talk to the Heather Turner team. I've got a link in my show notes. It's an email that will connect you to her directly. All right, let's uh, let's jump into a couple of other topics here. I've got uh, three things I wanted to cover before I'm out of time. One of the one of the things was uh, Pat Buchanan had a pretty interesting take on Kyle Rittenhouse, and I, I may I'm sorry if you if you're sick of hearing about Kyle Rittenhouse. I like Pat Buchanan's take on a lot of stuff. It's rare that I disagree with him, but uh, this is not one of those cases where where I disagree. And since the question is out there, this is you know something the majority of the public has had to at least consider: Is Kyle Rittenhouse a solid citizen, or is he a racist vigilante, or maybe even somewhere in between? since there, there may be more than just this binary choice. Well, it's pretty clear where the legacy media stands on this question, but Pat Buchanan has a pretty worthwhile take on the, on the situation. He says, in judging the actions of Kyle Rittenhouse, set aside for a moment the, the Wisconsin law under which he's being tried and consider the natural law, the moral law, the higher law written on the human heart. In terms of values demonstrated, and deeds done that night that Rittenhouse shot the three men who attacked him. Who was on the righteous side? Well, he says, consider what Rittenhouse did that night of August 25th, 2020, and why. Watching television, the nightly riots in Kenosha, Wisconsin, watching watching this on TV, this was a town 20 miles from his home in Antioch, Illinois. And he knew Wisconsin, or he knew Kenosha well. Rittenhouse decided to go to Kenosha to protect property that embattled police had been unable to defend during the riots. Now, for protection, he picked up the AR-15 that he kept in Kenosha. By the way, if you know anything about Illinois' uh, gun laws, it would make sense. If you have family, which he did, in a neighboring state just 20 miles away, it would make sense to store it you know, out of the the jurisdiction of gun grabbers like you'll find in Illinois. Toward midnight, Rittenhouse was confronted by Joseph Rosenbaum, an ex-con twice his age. Rosenbaum threatened Rittenhouse, backed him into a corner, and tried to grab the barrel of his rifle. And when a shot rang out nearby, 
Rittenhouse shot four times within a single second. When Rosenbaum fell, Rittenhouse took off running, looking for the police to turn himself in, with a mob in hot pursuit. Out of that mob, an assailant hit him in the head, knocking his hat off. Rittenhouse fell onto the street. Another rioter jumped, kicked, and stomped his head on the concrete pavement. Another hit him in the head with a skateboard. Another man confronted him with a loaded pistol and aimed it at Rittenhouse's face from a few feet away. Rittenhouse shot and killed Anthony Huber, who'd hit him with the skateboard and was grabbing his gun barrel, and wounded the man holding the gun to his face. When Rittenhouse shot both men, he was still on the ground. Now, while Rittenhouse's decision to go to Kenosha may have been unwise, it was also an unselfish and indeed brave act. He was risking his life in a riot to defend another man's property and do his civic civic duty in a situation of lawlessness. He could have stayed home, as almost everyone in Kenosha did that night while their city was burned and pillaged. And what were the motives and goals of Joseph Rosenbaum, the child rapist and ex-con, and Anthony Huber, who wielded the skateboard? What were they doing in Kenosha if not helping to sustain a criminal riot to destroy property Rittenhouse had come to defend? Why was he there? I have no answer. I ask myself that question every day, said Rosenbaum's fiance about that night. And again, whatever one thinks of Rittenhouse entering a volatile situation, he emerges as one of the good guys. His actions were taken for commendable goals, whereas his assailants' purposes were to engage in a criminal rampage and riot. This is why Rittenhouse is being so fiercely defended. People sense that whatever he did, the 17-year-old went to Kenosha to do the right thing. And those who believe the Black Lives Matter Antifa riots were justified are the ones who want Rittenhouse to spend the rest of his life in prison for shooting rioters who were threatening and attacking him for interfering with their crimes. Sensing Rittenhouse has the country behind him, media efforts have been mounted to find a racial element in Rittenhouse's motivation. President Joe Biden implied that the Kenosha shootings were the work of white supremacists. The president's statement was as ignorant as it was malicious. Rittenhouse is white. All three men he shot are white. His defense attorney and the prosecutor are white. The trial judge is white. Only Rosenbaum is recorded as having used the N-word that night during what was billed as a BLM protest for racial justice. Under Wisconsin law, Buchanan writes, the issue comes down to self-defense. Did Rittenhouse fire his AR-15 because he believed, with reason that he might suffer death or serious bodily harm if he did not? Or did he provoke rioters into attacking him so he could run up a body count, as the prosecution alleges? Shooting the individual who put the loaded pistol in Rittenhouse's face was surely self-defense. And according to testimony, Rosenbaum and Huber both sought to grab the barrel of the AR-15 to pull it away, in which case Rittenhouse would have been at their mercy and possibly dead. Now, the judge has expanded the range of choices which, of which Rittenhouse may be convicted, giving the jury a menu of, of lesser charges if they don't believe that Rittenhouse was guilty of intentional homicide. The prosecution has described Rittenhouse as an active shooter, calling to mind the Las Vegas gunman who massacred dozens of people from a music concert by firing from his hotel room window. But a 17-year-old running from a mob and shooting while sitting on the ground and being a- attacked scarcely fits the description of an active shooter. 
So Pat Buchanan says, Kyle Rittenhouse used his rifle to protect someone else's property and his own life. He was both righteous and in the right. They, meaning his attackers, were in the wrong. I suspect there aren't very many people within the sound of my voice that uh, are hearing this that are that are disagreeing with it. I mean, you might you might quibble on some points, but I think Pat Buchanan's got a pretty good case here from a moral standpoint. Yeah, I think Rittenhouse was in the right, and it doesn't change the fact this guy is going to carry with him the trauma of ending two people's lives. You, your your psyche punishes you for these kind of things, even under the best of circumstances. Sure, going to be interesting to see how this all shakes out. Got a, <coughs> excuse me, I've got a link to this in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. And uh, there's, here's another, another story that you're not hearing a lot about, but one to keep your eye on. Have you seen where the Oklahoma National Guard's new commanding general is not obeying Pentagon dictates to administer the vaccine mandate to all of the National Guard troops in Oklahoma? Got an article here from Ryan McMacken from Mises.org. Says, in a surprising development, Republican Governor Kevin Stitt refused to implement the Biden administration's vaccine mandate. And this has placed the governor directly at odds with Pentagon brass and with the White House as it aggressively attempts to enforce its latest vaccine mandate upon all military personnel. Here's how the Washington Post sums up the situation. Governor Kevin Stitt last week removed the state's adjutant general who had directed troops to comply with the vaccine mandate and replaced him with a new commanding general who promptly issued the order rejecting it. In his memo, Brigadier General Thomas Mancino, the state's new National Guard commander, said personal personnel rather could sidestep the policy with no repercussions unless they are put on federal duty. Now, Ryan McMacken points out the legal situation's complicated. As originally imagined by early Americans, the state militias are supposed to be independent military units unless called into national service during wartime. Moreover, state governors have at times exercised a de facto veto over federal control of state troops. Since the National Defense Act of 1933, however, National Guard units have been deemed members of both the state's National Guard and the federal military. Moreover, over time, the federal government has gradually eroded the authority of state governors in controlling the deployment and use of state troops. By 1990, governors had lost virtually all of their independence. National Guard troops in each state nominally remain under the command of the respective governors unless activated by the U.S. president. Thus, it appears Governor Stitt is attempting to take advantage of these few remaining powers in order to refuse mandating vaccines for state troops. Now, not surprisingly, that's led to resistance from the Pentagon, and if past experience is any indicator, the Pentagon will not hold back in devising ways to punish Oklahoma and its National Guard chain of command unless it quickly falls back into line. We're going to come back to this article here in just a few moments, but I'm wondering if the cracks are beginning to appear, and you are going to see more states start to assert their own sovereignty in matters like this. Is it something to be scared about? I don't know. Don't know enough about it, but we'll touch on it when we come back right after these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Currently sharing an article from Ryan McMacken from Mises.org. I actually picked this up off LewRockwell.com this morning. The Oklahoma National Guard refused the VAX mandate. The Pentagon is not pleased. And this here's a question that has to be answered. Who is actually in charge of Oklahoma's troops? Over the weekend, Oklahoma's adjutant general issued a statement on the state's guard vaccine policy. And in it, it says, under Title 32, Congress established a dual framework for the National Guard. The states receive federal funding in return for being made available to the federal government when called to active duty by the president. Under Title 32, the Oklahoma National Guard is a state-controlled, federally funded entity and takes orders from the governor at his designated chain of command. When mobilized by the president under Title 10, the Oklahoma National Guard takes all orders from the president and his designated chain of command. Failing to follow the governor's lawful orders while on Title 32 would be both illegal, unethical, and against our sworn oaths. Nothing in this order prevents anyone from taking the vaccine. Also, nothing in his order eliminates the federal requirement. The governor is hoping for federal relief from the Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, and in the interim has granted state relief from this requirement. So until a guardsman is activated under Title 10, they follow the lawful commands of the governor of the state of Oklahoma, who has not mandated the COVID-19 vaccine for Oklahoma Guard members. Once activated to Title 10 status, guardsmen are subject to all Title 10 laws and mandates until returning to Title 32 status. So if you, meaning the Oklahoma Guard members, are not mobilized on Title 10 orders, the only entity that can give you a lawful order, that is an order backed by the authority of law, is the governor and his designated state chain of command. That law is Title US 32 or Title 32 U.S. Code. This is easily seen by the fact that the Uniform Code of Military Justice does not apply to you in Title 32 status. Instead, you are governed by the Oklahoma Code of Military Justice. And this is the end of that quote there. So, McMacken says it's notable that in response to this accurate legal interpretation from the governor, the Pentagon has done little other than just insist repeatedly it has the authority to force compliance. Yet no specific legal authority is quoted or invoked. Yet the Pentagon has plenty of tricks up its sleeves for when it uh, comes to getting uh, compliance from state National Guard units. For example, in the 1980s, Ohio Governor Richard Celeste refused to send National Guard troops to Honduras to assist with the Pentagon's various interventions in Central American regimes. So the Pentagon immediately made plans to remove military resources from Ohio in an effort to embarrass the governor. The idea was that the Ohio economy would suffer as military spending in the state was withdrawn. And the governor soon caved to the Pentagon's orders. Thus, the Pentagon has grown accustomed to immediate and unquestioning obedience from state governors. Although this is directly contrary to the very idea of state-controlled military units. We saw a similar response from the Pentagon in 2019, when the legislature of West Virginia contemplated limiting Pentagon control of West Virginia's troops. Specifically, some West Virginia lawmakers considered a bill limiting the state's National Guard deployments to only military operations conducted during a period of congressionally declared war. The Pentagon immediately threatened to use the cudgel of federal spending in West Virginia if the bill was adopted. So it's likely the Pentagon will do the same in Oklahoma, 
should the governor persist in refusing to enforce the vaccine mandate. On Wednesday, for example, the Pentagon repeatedly reportedly claimed that if Oklahoma does not comply, it will no longer be maintaining national recognition and the Guard will become just a state militia. This is, a, this is likely a step on the way to removing all federal funding from the state's Guard in the manner used in the past as a means of turning the screws on state government. Moreover, says Ryan McMacken, the Pentagon has hinted it will force compliance by going after individual Guard members on a case-by-case basis. Now, given that these troops are under the command of the state government, however... It's unclear who will hold them accountable to what to the rule and what punishments, if any, will be handed down. Unfortunately, military spending is so centralized in the federal government that it will be difficult for Oklahoma or any other state to refuse Pentagon orders in anything beyond the short term. Moreover, thanks to generations of militarist hysteria over communists and terrorists, the U.S. military establishment has greatly centralized military command authority in Washington overall. Yet Ryan McMacken says this is good news overall. Combined with the U.S. military's turn toward woke politics, this latest episode around vaccine mandates will further help to undermine support for military institutions among conservatives, the very group that has for so many decades offered untrammeled obedience and deference in favor of the Pentagon's agenda. That's an interesting twist, and it's an interesting story. Definitely want to... uh, Keep your eyes on this one. All right, one final note here, and this is uh, the latest from Annie Holmquist from Intellectual Takeout, Why Your Son Should Reconsider College. She says, a young friend of mine's in his last year of high school asking the, old age, the age-old question, what should I do with my life? Most average high school seniors would be settling on their final liberal arts college choice right now, more concerned about the climbing wall in the student center and the cafeteria entrees than the degree in sociology that they're about to fork out tens of thousands of dollars for. But she says, not this young man. He's almost certain that he is going to trade school next year at the Minnesota-based Dunwoody College of Technology. Oh, I can almost hear you say in a dejected tone, what's his problem? Isn't he smart enough to get into real college? Au contraire, she says. This young man is very intelligent, polite, and capable. He could easily have chosen to to attend a prestigious college. But she says, I would contend that his trade school choice shows that he's smarter than most kids his age. For he knows which way the wind is blowing and has decided that trade school is the best way to get his feet solidly under him while he's still in his young 20s. So why is trade school looking like an increasingly smart idea? for young men like my friend to choose over college. And Annie Holmquist says, several possibilities come to mind. For starters, trade school offers various securities, the most obvious being financial. She says, if my young friend were to graduate from Dunwoody today, he would likely start a job with an average salary of almost $54,000. Now, that average has risen $5,000 just in the last year alone. Contrast this with the average starting salary for a Minnesota college graduate. That number stands at just over 37000 according to Zip Recruiter. So perhaps the reason for such a higher average salary is the increasing demand for those who labor with their hands. The baby boomer generation has long filled the electrician, plumber, welder, and other traditional job trades, but with their accelerating retirement comes a dearth of blue-collar workers. 
For every one that enters the trades, five retire. That's according to Industrial Safety and Hygiene News. They reported that back in 2019. So this statistic promises a lot of job security to young people just starting out. Those who enter trade school can also have a good shot at an independent life. Depending on the trade they learn, graduates may be able to start their own company. Being your own boss these days means avoiding such things as vaccine mandates threatened for big businesses. It also means you're less likely to be canceled in our crazed, politically correct world of white-collar jobs where diversity and inclusion seminars are standard fare and where holding a door for a woman could get you labeled as a sexist. Trade school also gives students a good foundation for life because it often takes less time to complete than traditional college and because hard skills are in such demand. Students who choose trade school can jump into the workforce at a young age, accumulate reasonable savings, and even choose to attend college while down, a while down the road when their few extra years of maturity and financial stability will help them succeed. And lastly, there's another advantage to trade school that many prefer not to mention. It's a form of higher education monopolized by males. Now, this is unpopular because today's culture is all about gender balance. Females are disadvantaged. We must give women extra help to break through the glass ceiling, or so the thinking goes. But this quest seems to have hurt males immensely. Back in fall of 2021, the Wall Street Journal ran a feature-length article on the rapid decline in male college enrollment. Reading between the lines, she says, one can guess that the politically correct quest to fixate on women and policies like diversity, equity, and inclusion is why colleges have lost men. And they're only realizing it just too late. So, people often wonder what they can do to fight against an eroding culture. Annie Holmquist says, I'm starting to think that sending our nation's sons to trade school might be one positive thing that parents can do. Financially secure, independent, mature, and capable men like those who graduate from trade schools are the ones ready to lead their communities and settle down with families. And strong families and communities will go a long way towards restoring our decaying society. I think she has a point here. You can find a link to this article in today's show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. Hit the subscribe button. I'll send those show notes right to your email inbox each and every weekday morning. This is The Brian Hyde Show.